Hi, I'm Peter Tufano, the Dean of Said Business School at the University of Oxford. You're listening to Leadership in Extraordinary Times, a podcast about business unusual. This pandemic has exposed the deep flaws in our systems. It's created historic challenges for business, but also opportunities for those with a commitment to building a better future. So here at Oxford Said, we believe it has never been more important to understand and respond to the challenges shaping our future. And as a world leader in academic business research, our global network of experts can help you prepare. Now is the time to reset how we do our business, to make it more equitable and sustainable, and to redefine the workplace. Episode 2, Navigating the Next Normal, A View from Female Leaders. In this episode, we're discussing a topic that is timely and critical. How far does the pandemic represent a break from the past and a new opportunity for female leaders? Is there a danger that any advances made in gender equality will be undone by the fact that women are adversely impacted in the workplace because of COVID-19? To explore this, we've brought together a panel of exceptional women who are leaders in their fields. Baroness Ruby McGregor-Smith is the president of the British Chamber of Commerce and a conservative life peer. Ruby was formerly the CEO of Mighty Group PLC, the facilities and service giant. She's one of only a handful of female FTSE 350 chief executives and the first Asian woman to hold such a position. She's an active board member across business and government. She's a champion for diversity in the workplace and advises the House of Lords on issues such as gender and the diversity pay gap. In 2017, Ruby published an independent review called Race in the Workplace. Dame Vivian Hunt is a senior partner for McKinsey & Company UK and Ireland and has been with the company for 25 years. Vivian has been named the most influential black woman in Britain and one of the top 25 consultants in the world. At McKinsey, she has co-authored influential publications focusing on how to triumph over adversity as well as financial performance and is also a passionate advocate for inclusion in the workplace. Vivian was recently appointed by the Prime Minister as a member of the Build Back Better Council, which advises the government on recovery after the COVID-19 crisis. She's also, I'm proud to say, a member of the Global Leadership Council of Said Business School. Catherine Bishop is an Associate Fellow here at Said Business School, and she's the Chair of the Welsh Revenue Authority. Her research focuses on women's leadership and careers, and she teaches on the school's many development programs for women. Her new book, Make Your Own Map, Career Success Strategies for Women, has just been published. And chairing the discussion is my colleague, Professor Sue Dobson, Deputy Dean of Said Business School and Professor of Organizational Behavior. Over now to Sue. Hello, and welcome to today's Leadership in Extraordinary Times event from Oxford University Said Business School. Wherever in the world you are, thank you for joining us. So we have some wonderful guests for us to have this debate with. Welcome. So let's get underway then. And I think the first question to all our panelists is really, what have we learnt about leadership during the pandemic? And maybe if I can invite uh, Ruby first, please. Thank you, Sue. It's such a big question, isn't it? What have we learned from leadership during this pandemic? I mean, I certainly take away how much stress, how much anxiety I've seen in individuals over the last year or so, and how I've seen leaders very much respond to that. 
I think there's not been a huge amount of focus that I've seen in Britain so far, as of this week, the way out of where we currently stand. And I also think, I don't know about all of you, but in terms of leadership for me, I, I'm, I'm almost craving, as we do start to come out of this, a real focus on positivity and excitement, because so far over the last year, we haven't really seen that. We've been dealing with a crisis like no other that has constantly changed almost weekly and, and made us all change direction in what we're doing. I've seen across the bump, the companies I advise some real challenges. It's literally floored the aviation market, tourism and travel market. In others, it's put things back and in others, it's it's meant a complete switch to digital. But what I think through all of that has really made me feel quite positive has been how people have come together and thought about what is the real purpose of business and leadership as we start to come out of this. So it's been quite mixed, but I think it's um, it's going to be very interesting as we continue the debate today on what are our real reflections for the future. Vivian, over to you. We have a long way to go, another full year, I would say, of more optimistic context, but still very serious management of am I in a good position locally with my health status, is my family safe, is my business secure, et cetera. And then as business leaders, you also have to respond with a new level of engagement and empathy. I often say, if we weren't talking about COVID, the economic crisis and the crisis around social justice that amplified this year, the issues we would be discussing around purpose-led businesses, particularly around an ESG agenda and or the impact of technology on work, polarizing globalization, you know, there are multiple huge vectors um, on our generation and on us as business leaders. And I do think it has resulted in a much more authentic and plain speaking type of business style that I hope stays because I do think to cut through the complexity and seriousness of the issues we're having, you know, we need just a little bit more real talk from our leaders. I also think it's why you've seen some female leaders do particularly well during this crisis because bringing in multiple variables, handling this type of contextual complexity, going from the personal individual care situation and just empathy and real presence and care that you see in you know Jacinda's face when she's serving her population all the way through to her commitment to transparent and syndicated decision-making as she leads um, in her elected responsibilities as prime minister. So I just want to highlight that we talk about what do women bring to the party in times of crisis? Does female leadership matter? I think we're seeing lots of examples of where leadership that's more authentic, genuinely informed by your priorities and you know has economics and empathy, which is more typical of female leadership patterns. Men who have that are doing better as well. So it's just to say we should be confident that uh, you know the skill set that female leaders bring, I think, will be particularly relevant as we continue to navigate what I think will still be quite choppy water. Thank you, Vivian. Thank you, and and Catherine. Um, perhaps I can ask you to comment on what we've learned. Sue, thank you. I think for everybody, it's been an extraordinarily difficult experience. And one of the bits of optimism that we could cling on to is that I think we have learnt a lot of things. I've been quite struck by two in particular. And they are both things that we knew in theory and that we knew from research, but which I think we've seen in practice uh, over the last year. One of them is that there isn't going to be a single hero leader with all the answers. 
this is a complex situation. It changes rapidly. It morphs into different contexts. It may technically be the same storm, but we're all in different boats. And so how could any one person have a single set of answers that covers all our different perspectives? So we really are beginning to see that we do need collaboration, the ability to really, really listen. We knew that in theory, but I think we have all uh, experienced that to some extent. And one of our challenges will be to cling on to that, to take it with us as we go into the next normal. The second thing I, I've really been struck by, and I, I think this is a so uh, source of optimism, is that leadership is everywhere in all parts of an organization or a community. And we've seen all sorts of examples of solutions to problems or new ideas simply being taken up and implemented by somebody with energy straight away. In communities, organizing local food deliveries, in organizations changing the way services and goods are delivered, or even individuals at home deciding that they will step up and do something about a, a PPE problem. So leadership is not so much a characteristic of a person, but as uh, some of my colleagues have written in recent articles, is a, quote, shared property of the wider system in which the leader operates. You don't have to have a title or a big office to be a leader. We thought we knew that in theory, but we've absolutely seen it in practice over the last 12 months. So now moving just to think about what leadership do we actually need going forward, having reflected on what we've learned, what kind of leadership do we need going forward? Maybe we start with Vivian, please. Well, I think the gems are in some of Catherine's comments about the characteristics of the leadership and the leadership environment we need. So if we no longer have a hierarchical view, it's much more, let me call it team-based and system-viewed, and it's also much more agile, particularly if we use technology um, and networks, um, relationships to connect between us. And I think you've got to, when you think about modern leadership models, they are much more distributed um, in terms of how you structure your operating rhythm. Think about hybrid working as a permanent way of working, not just an urgent response to a health challenge. Think about a distributed, syndicated, pulse-based sentiment analysis to inform decisions about your customers or employee base using AI to inform leadership decisions. So the voice of your stakeholders is available to you and in the room. You're not hyper-focusing only on one representat representative, sort of the one or two female leaders that you might have, but you actually have sentiment across your customers, your supply chain government. Um, so you need to use technology. And you also need to listen at a deeper level to motivation to solve problems. So, and that could be around new demand, right? Around what consumers are needing. It could be around the stresses and relief and uh, structures and support that your employees need. There was someone who was commenting about the paradox of having more empathetic, collaborative leadership models needed at the same time that many people, but particularly women, are really being crushed by the pincer movement of their responsibilities at work, a higher proportion of frontline jobs, higher health vulnerability, and domestic responsibilities, where even with the most engaged partner in the world, most women in relationships and whoever is taking the lead role domestically in a relationship is taking on three to five times the amount of domestic and care responsibilities. Just in our own household, um, it has been uh, really challenging to navigate those things and still be able to lead properly at work. So when you say, what do you need for the future? I think things like collaboration, 
broader inclusion of stakeholders, using technology as a way to work more flexibly, but still stay connected, deeper listening and empathy. A lot of the elements I think are in, are in Catherine's thesis, but we also have to realize that leaders themselves, each of us, you know, are also in a, at a moment when you can very easily become hyper-stressed. You know, too much technology, too much input, too much information, not enough clarity. So you've got to make sure your own resilience and well-being is strong because the world is more complex and leaders need to be able to manage, hopefully share that complexity and structure of decision-making. But particularly for, and this is a view from a female leader, but also for female leaders in particular, particularly for, for women who have, on average, significantly more caring responsibilities. Thank you, thank you, Vivian. Catherine, do you want to uh, reflect on what kind of leadership we would need in the future? Thank you. Yes, I think I'd like to say two things. So in the longer term, I am really hoping for and am optimistic about the possibilities of situations in which there is a much greater range of leadership styles from men and women, a recognition that variety of leadership approaches in itself adds value and is useful. But over the course of the next 12 months, I think we all have a particular challenge to face. And that is balancing the needs of the short term and urgent, the stuff that has to be done right now, while simultaneously starting to think about the medium and the long term. And I sometimes describe this as a need for a different kind of zooming ability from leaders. We need to be able to zoom in and solve something that has to be fixed right now, as we did in the first weeks and months of the crisis. But we also need to be able to zoom out and consider the long term uh, implications and how the scenarios might play out in the future. Take a simple example. If we are thinking about remote working patterns and the choices that we're all going to have to make about where we want to work, we're going to have to make those authentically as best works for the range of responsibilities that we have at work and outside. But we're also going to have to consider the medium and long-term implications of, for example, a world in which most women have chosen to work from home most of the time, and most men have chosen to work in the office most of the time. That will make the culture of the organisation quite different. And what will it do to performance and promotion regimes? Who knows? That, that's an example of what looks like a short-term zoomed-in choice that actually has some medium-term implications. And that's what we are really going to have to balance over the next year in particular. Yeah, and, and Ruby? You know, when, when I think about leadership of the future, I kind of think very much around how it needs to be authentic, it needs to be team-based, it needs to be empathetic. We have far too many examples of non-empathetic leaders, which I don't, I've never agreed with. And I'd much rather talk about how I felt as a leader than not talk about it at all. Because it's the only way you can connect to the people you work with. And it's around, it's about time people saw leaders for what they really are, their strengths, their weaknesses. You know, we don't have to have this culture, this constant culture of it all has to be perfect. And we need to have a leadership style in any, every organization that completely brings together all the talent an organization has. I, you know, I'm looking forward to a day where we don't have to talk about diversity and inclusion in the workplace because it's a given. I want to talk about, I don't want to talk about why we need the ethnicity pay gap 
because it's a given that we do all these things properly. You know, we need to move to a much fairer workplace for all of society. And that's what future leaders need to do as we come out of this. And finally, I'll say we need positivity. The word positivity is something I think we're all craving. I certainly am. And excitement from future leaders, please. Just pull out a comment from Sarah Ritchie. She says, it's interesting how women are valued for empathetic leadership in a time of crisis while losing jobs in record numbers. So an interesting uh, observation there. But do send in your questions. But we do have a question from Sandra Peters in London. When will we have the first woman president of the US? Vivian, do you want to go for that? I, I would say that to say one is the system, whether it is a, a system of hiring in a company or the electoral system in the US or in the UK, you know, has to be diverse and inclusive enough that the voice of the population is and the shape of the things that are driving the economic and policy outcomes can be heard. The electoral evidence of the U.S.'s ability to elect in the same diversity of the population and the economy is proven by this most recent election. And that is particularly around the voter registrations, where and how different communities were activated, the efficiency of getting out a diverse vote even though within diverse voters, there was still a uh, change. I think 10 or 15% of black men voted for Trump. I think a third of Latinx voters voted for Trump, the balance for Democrats. And as you have more genuine options and alternatives, what you'll find is that there's a lot of diversity within diverse communities. And we won't be um, expecting people to vote only on, you know, God forbid, gender or ethnic stereotypes. It is women who put Trump in office, it's women who took him out. So. That's the first thing that's required. The second thing is clearly we have a female vice president today. If Joe Biden serves two terms and she is successful in those terms, she'll be a very strong candidate for the top of the presidential ticket and everything about her record as well as their behavior indicates that they're preparing for that outcome. And I think you can begin to see the names of people like Elizabeth Warren and others. The Republican side, it's less clear that a woman leader will come to the top of the ticket at the same force. But I think um, it just depends on how much change happens. We're seeing this movie live, but I think it is very realistic that within 10 years, we'll see a female president of the US. We've got a, a question from Sarah Martin. What are your thoughts about how women leaders can best help those women who are clinging on to their careers in this pandemic by the skin of their teeth? Catherine, do you want to have a, a crack at that one? Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Um, well, partly this is a question about resilience. And I notice in the chat that there was a question about uh, developing resilience. And I also notice, and this is tremendous, that somebody else watching this event has actually answered that question. So there's a good lot of interplay already going in from those watching. And that's, I think, part of the answer to, to make sure that we are uh, supporting each other at work and outside. I sometimes tell the story of the, what is sometimes referred to as the strategy of amplification that uh, female staff members in the White House under uh, Obama, in Obama's term of office use. That is to say, to make sure that their voices are heard by uh, literally in a meeting, commenting back that somebody, Mary said this, I thought that was a really excellent idea, can we just return to that? So actually trying to provide support uh, in the workplace and making sure voices, uh, voices are heard. But ultimately, the responsibility for managing our own boundaries, uh, the balance between work life and home life lies with us. And of course, balance 
it's a lovely word. It sounds as if it's smooth and balletic, but balance is really about always nearly falling to one side or the other. So it's a constant uh, challenge to cling on to useful and rewarding work while still discharging all your other responsibilities. And there is no easy answer, save to draw on the advice and insight and support of those you know. Networks have always been important. I think they're going to be even more important in the next normal. As we are not in the office all the time, uh, as we struggle perhaps alone with issues that other people are also struggling with. You're listening to Leadership in Extraordinary Times with me, Peter Tufano. In this episode, we're taking a view from female leaders on how to navigate the next normal. Sharing their insights are Ruby McGregor-Smith, president of the British Chamber of Commerce, Vivian Hunt, senior partner at McKinsey, Catherine Bishop, associate fellow here at Side Business School, and moderating this online event is our deputy dean, Professor Sue Dobson. Questions for the panel flew in from our audience, tuning in live from around the world. Next came one from New Zealand's COVID-19 response. Life there is almost returning to normal. Well, here in the UK, we're still in a national lockdown. How much of that is due to the leadership of its prime minister, Jacinda Ardern? Ruby McGregor-Smith kicks us off. I think part of the challenges are we're, we're both very, very different countries, and I can talk quite a lot about why we didn't shut our borders last year in the UK. I think if you go down the route, I think the advantage very much for New Zealand, for much of Asia, is that they've dealt with infectious diseases before. And we have not had uh, the impact of, say, a SARS as, as one of the many examples from many years ago. And we were not ready at all. I think if I take a look at the leadership style, is that down to Lee? I, I think it very much is. But I think it's, um, you know, the challenge, I think, for women leaders is that when they get it right to begin with, it's great. When they get it wrong, it's also because they're a woman. It's not because of the strategy always. I think she's done a great job in managing to keep New Zealand on a really good even keel. But the challenge will come for every country when they want to open up because this virus, if this virus isn't going away. If so every country's got to have a long-term strategy to deal with it. But I certainly applaud what she's done so far. Thank you. Great question that's uh, come in from Natalia who asks, do the panel have views on how to boost morale and create excitement and engagement in addition to aligning around purpose? I think this is a question for all the panel. Catherine, would you start for me? Oh, goodness, I wish I knew the answer to that. I'd be implementing uh, all of them straight away. Um, somebody said to me, are we really looking forward enough to the opportunity to meet in person, to do impromptu things. I mean, there are good times ahead, definitely. And I think one of the things I'm certainly resolving is not to take those for granted in future. In terms of creating excitement and engagement, I think conversations about the medium and long term are a potential topic to draw in people with all sorts of experiences and to generate some energy. Because I do have an optimistic sense that the very fluidity of the pandemic, which has been frankly so wearisome, does bring opportunity. And as we come out of it, there will be opportunities to structure roles, to uh, set boundaries, to design work in ways that we've not been able to seize in the past. And that's an opportunity for a very energized conversation. Ruby, do you want to comment? 
God, I really wish we had all the answers to this one. I think around for me around excitement and morale is around coming together to fight for our futures. I'm fighting every day to have industries I work in opened up. And the mere idea I sit here in Britain today, not allowed to do anything except sit in my home, sit on a laptop and work, go out and get some food by myself and maybe go out once a day for some exercise. That isn't life, that's existing. And so I think we come together around a purpose of saying we want excitement, we want fun, we want to improve morale for everybody. And it's going to be a fight. You come together around the things you really believe in. I sit with industries at the moment who who are in a tough, tough place. But what I would say, what I would say about the leadership teams are, my God, they've got the excitement to want to grow again. Because when we come out of this, there is going to be a huge amount of pent up demand and growth. And that's, I think, very much the way to focus on it. And that's certainly what keeps me sane every day. Thank you. And Vivian? I think all of us are motivated by things that get that can be improved and building towards something in the future. And one is that we deliver on the promises we're making now around integrating purpose um, and multiple goals, be they environmental goals, social impact, um, representative balance, good quality governance, you know, a transparent, criteria-based, ethical operating environment for um, businesses and society, you know, that businesses actually build those in to their long-term goals, because we know businesses that do that are more successful. And so that's a better outcome for everyone, not just women or men. It does disproportionately benefit women and other historically underrepresented good, but the tide rises for everyone. So this notion of businesses figuring out, particularly in the last Edelman survey as some of the most trusted leaders in society at the moment, whether we like it or not, figuring out how to really deliver on that promise. I think we all need it. And if we could even build one, two, three concrete things into how we lead differently, concretely into our business and work outcomes, I think that's very encouraging. Um, secondly, I'll say flexible working, hybrid working models. In the same way that we have hybrid technology environments, we're going to have hybrid working models. And um, when we opened our part-time program at scale in our office in the UK, we found 60%, 6-0 of the participants on it were male, not female, um, who had caring responsibilities, who wanted to write a book, who were feeling facing health issues that they weren't paying enough attention to. So this notion of flexible working, it disproportionately helps women because of our increased uh, responsibilities, care responsibilities, the fact that we have more uh, explicit life stages around either maternity leaves or caring for older parents, that we'll hit the end on cord and press pause sometimes before a man will, um, which you see a, a lot in the economy now, and also that our jobs sometimes are more vulnerable, being more frontline work, sometimes lower paid, more service industries. All of those things mean that women's work is more vulnerable. There are many things that organizations can do to make that work more resilient. But by fixing those things with more sustainable, flexible models, you're actually fixing it for everybody. Because men want more flexibility. We all want more agency in how we're working. It's just that women will disproportionately benefit. And for me, that is fantastic. Because if we can figure out the way to incorporate engagement, fun, collaboration, community, back, you know, good health back, and still have you know 50 or 60% more flexible working, I think that's a great thing for particularly a services networked economy like the UK. 
Um, and then the last thing that gives me um, a lot of encouragement, and I'm a little bit of a data geek um, and an economics girl, but is the fact that with good use of data, we can make better decisions. And that inevitably helps women's position in business and women as leaders. So in the chat, someone was saying, you know, will a male dominated world accept female leadership styles? Female leadership should be half the population. That's all we are, right? And so with the way we lead should just be a normative way of leading, not an exception to the process. So I'm just really confident that with more data, information, transparency, participation, it's actually gonna be a much better work experience for most women. So I, I am very uh, positive that more data, transparency to make better decisions will, be, will come up with better outcomes for women. We're not looking for men to accept and include us. We just want a balanced environment where we can all participate. Thank you. That was a great question, Natalie, and a really great sense of response. And, and Ruby, in the chat, people are saying they can't wait to get going. So you've really sparked something out there, which is, which is good. So Alison Nolan asks in the, the, the chat, what do you think most needs to change in organizations to make sure the very widest range of people get to contribute their thinking? Um, Catherine, can I start with you? I'm going to anchor my answer around the uh, idea of flexibility. I think there are processes and ways of working that have simply been swept away over the last 12 months. And let's hope they don't just rush back like the uh, returning tide. And that's, in some ways, an articulation of our task. Our task, I think, is, to, is consciously to design ways of making sure that we are involving all those who need to be involved, that we are hearing voices, that we are understanding a range of contributions against a wider scale uh, of assessment criteria, whether that's formal uh, or informal. Um, and this is a conscious kind of design activity that leaders at any level in any organisation can just pay attention to and generate conversations about. Okay, thank you. And, and building on that, uh, Charlie Weston has asked a question. We hear a lot from organisations saying that they're working towards diversity in the workplace, particularly seeing more women in senior positions. How much of this do you think is hot air? So let me ask uh, Ruby first and then Vivian uh, to comment on that question. I find it pretty extraordinary that in 2021, we have every organisation will say they're equal opportunity employers. Everyone says that. Well, if they meant it, you'd see diversity and inclusion at every level in an organisation, and you don't. So we've got a long way to go. But there's a lot of talk about DNI. There's never, ever enough action. I never see organisations take the level of actions they should do until leadership teams are completely diverse with lived-in experiences. It's not going to change. So I don't think it's hot air. I just think a lot of people think, oh, we must talk about this. They never do the things that are going to create the change they need to do. They chat about changing their recruitment processes. They chat about, oh, it could take us a few years, you know, to, to train everybody. No, sponsor, sponsor, promote. It's not taking risks. It can be done. Two CEOs sponsored me once upon a time to give me my first big two breaks. When I first became a female CEO, there hadn't been one who was Asian before. How on earth could that have taken so long? And that, by the way, was in 2007, and we haven't had another one since. So I think we've got a long way to go. 
I think there's a lot of chat about it. There's never another enough tangible action plans on this. I could go on about this all day. You know, it can be done in three years if people really want to do it, but they don't. So when they do want to do it, it will happen. We start, therefore, with the gender pay gap and all the other pay gaps that show why it's so important. But really, leadership teams need to get their act together once and for all and say, if they're really serious about it, then change it and put it through the incentivization models. Business leaders ultimately work well through their incentivization models. If they're not incentivized to do it, they won't do it. And the, and the data really backs you up on that point, Ruby. Our data shows that we have about a third of organizations who are either sustaining both more representative and more inclusive organizations and or are making rapid progress. And you're absolutely right that even for some quite large organizations, you can really see the needle start to move after about three years. There are two other big categories, though, of companies outside of that. You know, a group that we would call resting on their laurels. You know, they've got 10 or 20 percent representation on gender and a bunch of other things. They're overly focused on inherent capabilities, like the fact you're a woman, as opposed to acquired capabilities, like what's your skill set and the managerial ability for this problem. And they've not yet found how to manage it well. That's why inclusion matters so much, because managing complex workforces, complex business environment, we talked about all the change and the variables that Catherine laid out. Um, you actually need managers who can lead and manage in a, a naturally, authentically inclusive way. It's a skill set. Building in the diversity and inclusion, just like environmental, just like good governance, is a skill set yeah. for companies. And when you treat it like a skill set that can be benchmarked against best practice, integrated into performance measurements, measured over time, hmm. celebrated for the things you do right and the efforts that you make even when you don't achieve it, then you will see real progress. And many companies, about a third of them, are linking E, S, including DNI, and governance criteria to performance and outcomes. And I'm with you, Ruby. I think unless there's real targets, aspirational targets set by the companies themselves or organizations themselves, we're not going to see real progress. The last thing I would say is you also have to really support people. An inclusive environment is just not about team managers. It's also about supporting people, particularly when they are only. In some of our women in the workplace research, you see what we call onlyness and hyper onlyness. You know, when you are the only woman or the only, you know, maybe person from the, your national culture, or you're in a highly remote, isolated situation. Think about the North Sea oil versus being in the main head office of an energy company. So my point is, whenever you have hyper onlyness and hyper isolation, which can just come from the fact of being the only woman or the only whatever in a situation, you've also got to provide support. So it's not just inclusion as a skill set for the average. It's also particularly important to support people who are the, the pioneers and at the front line because they experience what we call hyper isolation. But uh, I'm optimistic that companies are going to have more uh, sunlight shone on them because you can use a lot of data and analytics. 90% of companies say this is important and in their top five goals in the last year. And we'll see how many of them are treating it like a skill, measuring it, as Ruby says, and really making progress. Um, we've got Yemisi, who's watching from Lagos in Nigeria, who's asking our next question to the panel. As a woman, how difficult is it to navigate the challenges in the workplace where 90% of the leaders are male? How would you encourage women to hold firm? Catherine. <laughs> 
let me just be optimistic for a moment without being naive. I do think that the shared and quite uh, dramatic experience that we've all been through um, over the last 12 months is going to open minds to different ways of leading. I think it's going to have to because we are, will many of us find ourselves having to lead a hybrid team, having to run a meeting where half the people are in the room and half the people are on screen. In that sense, uh, I think there is going to be an opportunity for authentic leaders of either and any gender who want to lead, let's say, in ways that have uh, been non-traditional in that organisation. The thing to do, I think, is to spot those opportunities to lead authentically and then support those who are doing so, even if they're leading differently from you. Vivian, do you want to comment? I think that um, whether you're in a, an environment at work or at home where there's a critical mass of women around you really makes a big difference. If you get past the 25 or 30% mark, so 10 people are in a room, three of them are women. And it doesn't matter that one happens to be the team leader and two others are very junior, but it just changes the nature of the conversation. We all know that if we were just having a chat amongst women, we might talk about a slightly different set of things than if we were having a chat amongst men. And what men talk about when women aren't around, I, I actually have no idea. So <laughs> my point is just to say the cultural affinity of critical mass is a big differentiator. So if you're in a situation where you are a leader or you're on a team where you've got hyper-onlyness, you might be the only woman, you might also be junior, you might also not be an expert in the area, it is very important to have allies and people who are sponsoring and aware of the fact that the context in which you're in means that you may face more challenges or more institutional or cultural inertia. Even if your own company is doing things by the book, you know, I faced many challenges at clients. You know, I'd felt perfectly fine in the McKinsey team, but then the client might have a different culture and so forth. So you really need people on the teams who are your immediate working team. I don't just mean your CEO, but your immediate working team who are aware of your uh, multiple dimensions of diversity and your skill sets who support you, which includes supporting your development and also tough feedback when it's needed and who you can talk to. I also personally always have a kitchen cabinet. You know, I've got a group of six or seven people, some men, some women, who are people who I talk to outside of work. You know, my partner is one of them, but former uh, coaches and mentors from previous jobs and a one or two girlfriends um, who also are people I talk to just to calibrate to make sure that I'm not exaggerating things in my own mind or worse, minimizing things when I should be speaking up, you know, and I'm just saying, you know, we're, we're learning, we're trying, so forth and so on. And, and sometimes you overlook things because you're hardened, you call, we call it weathering, hardened to the environment. So my point is one, recognize if you've got a critical mass of like-minded people, be that by gender or background or not. And if you don't have that around you, um, and I see lots of people in the chat are talking about the challenges of being from an underprivileged background or challenges from being in an all-male environment, you know, really build, you know, a home team around you at work and also outside of work. But it's very important that it's at work. 60 to 70% of your outcomes at work are determined by things that your manager and the company you work in can do something positive about. And so you have to let people know where the pressure points are, and most people will want to have Ruby, do you have a comment? I think when you walk into a workplace and you're in the, a really small minority, as I've always found in my career, I have been with the industries I've worked in, it's incredibly lonely, really lonely. You crave fitting in 
when we used to be allowed to walk into a room together, you wanted to not stand out. You didn't want people to be looking at you and wondering about you. And it took me a long time to work out that standing out was okay. Being different was okay. So when I say being different, being a mum was okay. Like, well, basically being Asian was okay. Um, looking the way I did was okay. Because I just look so different to everybody else. And I think what you have to do is, it comes back to this point about how to cope. It's the resilience piece. It's understanding that you bring great skill. But it's making sure you've got someone great you work for who can really nurture and support you. The number of people I meet who are simply working in the wrong organizations, who don't look wider, who wonder why they're not succeeding. Do you know it isn't always because of you? It is because you might be in the wrong culture or the wrong place. And you need to really fight to make sure you understand why things don't always feel right in the workplace. So all I would say more than anything is it's okay to feel all of these things, but you need those allies, as Vivian said, you need them in the workplace, you need them outside the workplace. You need, as I've always said, a support unit, okay? A team that's kind of around you at every stage of your career to make sure you can move forward. Coming up in the final part of this discussion, what can women leaders do now to prepare for the next normal? But first, a question from a father of two daughters. How can we support our millennial and Gen Z women to lead as they face the exponential challenges ahead of them? Vivian Hunt's views on that first. What I would just say, and this is just teenagers, communication. Remember, they're, they're digital natives, but you know they're not robots, they're humans. They're just humans communicating with their generation in a different way that happens to be on a digital platform. My 14-year-old sees meeting his friends online almost as legitimate as a social activity. For me, I wouldn't count it that way. So just stay in conversation with your daughters, be present where they are, and ask them what's on their mind. And if you keep them communicating, and show them lots of good role models and really anchor in them that they can be anything they want to be, they'll take that lesson away. They'll remember it. You know, I'm a I'm a mum of a girl and a boy. And certainly for my for my daughter, I've always said to her, you can be whatever you want to be, and I'll be there to support you. But the way they communicate, the way they think is different. But despite all their differences, they still have these the big things we have to build in them, which is very much around resilience and also being able to deal with knockbacks because they're going to get them, okay? None of us like failure. None of us like setbacks. None of us like any of that. Just keep supporting them to be resilient. The pandemic has shown us more than anything about the lack of resilience. So many of us have in so many ways at times. We've all had it, and it's something we've all got to keep working on. But with that generation, it's just constantly reminding them that, you know, especially if they've got incredibly supportive parents who can really help them. God, when they get out in the real world, it may not always quite go to plan. OK, well, we started this conversation by thinking about the lessons that we've learned from the past and what we needed in the future in terms of leadership. I'm going to ask the, the panellists to focus now on the present and Give some advice about the one thing that we as women leaders can do now to prepare for the next normal. So really bringing us down to the present and getting your views about preparation for us as as women. Catherine, let me go to you first. I think we are all going to have some choices ahead. Every single one of us, individuals and organisations. 
it may even just be how many days a week to go into the office. And uh, we've talked a little bit uh, about that choice earlier in this conversation. Um, it might be about boundaries, how you're going to set your own working and home life boundaries. But there are definitely going to be some decisions, some options to choose from that we're going to have to make, all of us. Um, and so I think to prepare for those decisions, uh, the one thing we could do now is to do a bit of reflecting. And the trouble is that's really easy to say, but very hard to do when we absolutely know the pressures that are on leaders of all kinds, employees of all kinds um, in every organisation. So here's just one thing that I am mentally trying to do. And it's actually in response, uh, partly in response to one of the questions that was asked in the chat. I am building my own personal list of stuff that I am not going to do when we go back to normal. Uh, for example, long meetings, recruitment panels that are entirely non-diverse, presentism, a sense of, oh, not in the office where we'll just carry on without them. Um, uh, so those are some of the things on my list. Let me issue a challenge to each of you. What's on your list? Thank you. And Ruby? I think for me, I think the, um, having always run growth businesses, my obsession in business has always been about business growth and how to prepare for the next generation or of businesses that are going to grow and be really brilliant as they come out of this. And so I think, well, you know, for me, leaders today need to be thinking about what's really going to come what's the positives are they and are they ready are they really ready are they as tech enabled as they need to be have they decided what working practices they're going to kick people with or which ones they're going to completely ditch that's what they all need to be doing because my view is now is that unless we get ready when things do open up in Britain and in our elsewhere, okay, it's those that have really thought through how they're going to open up, what they're really going to be, and how they're going to work that I think are going to be the big winners. And Vivian? I mean, I, I think the way of working is the biggest thing I would say. I, I don't think I personally or most businesses will go back to whatever your old model was. Um, and that is, I think, you know, at a global scale, that could be between 20 and 40% shift in our workforce changes. And it's very linked to technology enablement. Um, and you have, you know, many homes that don't have enough digital access and so forth. So this notion of digitization as an infrastructure, no different than our roads or our buses or our water system. Um, and secondly, that on that digital platform, we'll have a lot more choice and flexibility about how we work. Very few people in Generation Z are thinking about starting a brick, when they say start a business, they don't even think about a bricks and mortar business or the fact that in Arcadia, the brands and the sales are now separated totally from the real estate. That's not an unusual business model. And so the combination of the technology that's available to us, plus the fact that we just can't go back to the way we were before, just means this way of working thing for me is probably the biggest immediate thing. And for you to decide what is it that we as a family, I as a person, you and your heart and skill sets want to do, what model will work best for you. And in a way, find an employer in a context that works well with that. We know that a huge amount of dislocation in the workforce is disproportionately being carried by women. So 54 or 55%, for example, of US redundancies and furlough are carried by women who are only 39% of the workforce. But that's not just because of care responsibilities and vulnerable, more vulnerable frontline work. 
it's also because some women are just choosing to hit pause before they hit a stress point. And your resilience and knowing your boundaries is very linked to how you work. We spend so much time at work in our professional outcomes. And it's a huge part of who we are. I mean, work is just as important to women as it is to men. And so I just would say finding a, a model of working that works for you. And if it's not in the company you're in or with the people you're working with, you know, I'm with you, I'm with Ruby, you know, have the courage to change. My thanks to Dame Vivian Hunt, Baroness Ruby McGregor-Smith, Catherine Bishop, and Professor Sue Dobson. My name is Peter Tufano, and you've been listening to Leadership in Extraordinary Times, a podcast from Oxford University's Said Business School. Please do take a moment to rate, review, and subscribe to future episodes wherever you get your podcasts. In the next episode, we'll be discussing why, as the world strives for net zero, accountants must agree and implement global sustainability standards. If you'd like more information about this episode and the Leadership in Extraordinary Times series, please visit us at oxfordanswers.org. Take care, and thanks for listening.